0: thinking about how to be a good game master or a good facilitator, and and like you mentioned, a good parent. When we talk about spontaneity, playfulness, attunement, restraint, and knowledge, these are kind of five pieces that you want to kind of keep in mind as you're moving forward.
1: Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired podcast network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician, Turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? October is ADHD Awareness Month but November is when I will be all over the place. November 1st, I will be doing a live webinar for Attitude on how teachers and parents can help lonely teenagers who are dealing with peer rejection. November 7th, I'm part of the Putting Mama First Summit, a virtual summit where I'll be talking about why setting boundaries is part of self-care and how to set them. Also on November 7th, I'm part of See Beyond ADHD, another virtual summit. This one is a more free-ranging interview where I talk about everything from the foundations of ADHD management to homeschooling to why we should give ourselves more credit. On November 17th, I will be at the International Conference on ADHD in Texas, sharing a workshop for ADHD professionals on how to be a great podcast guest. And on November 18th, I'll still be at that ADHD conference, and I'll be hosting a panel of ADHD influencers featuring Jessica McCabe, Renee Brooks, John Hazelwood, and Danny Donovan. And just for the sake of overdoing it, I will be pushing beyond November, and on December 3rd, I will be featured on a panel at PAX Unplugged in Philadelphia, a board gaming convention. On that panel, I will be one of many talking about the relationships between ADHD. And Dungeons and Dragons. Links for all of that stuff will be in the show notes. And as a side note, if you're looking to go to the ADHD conference but haven't signed up yet, my link includes a 15% discount. And at this point, it's the only way left to get discounted tickets. Of course, don't forget to check out our partner podcasts ADHD Rewired with Eric Tivers, Hacking Your ADHD with Will Curb, and ADHD Diversified with MJ. Finally, A great way to support this show is to provide a rating and review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast player of choice. It really helps others find the show, and that helps me help more people. Welcome to the show. Today, we're talking to Dr. Elizabeth Kilmer. Dr. Kilmer is a licensed clinical psychologist and the Director of Education and Training at Game2Grow. In this outstanding interview. Elizabeth shares a brief exploration of ways Dungeons and Dragons and similar tabletop role-playing games support social growth. And then, for the bulk of the interview, we examine the Spark model from Game2Grow's Critical Core program. And we look at how parents can use this guide for good game mastering to improve their parenting. I recognize this interview might seem a little niche and geeky. I am, after all, a bit of a geek. But I promise, even if you have zero interest in Dungeons and & Dragons and you don't get what all the fuss is about, you will find useful information in this interview. Throughout the conversation, we're essentially looking at the similarities and metaphorical interconnections between being a good game master and being a good parent or leader. Besides, it's been a few years since I did a D&D episode, and I think I'm due for one. Alright, let's get rolling.
0: My name is Dr. Elizabeth Kilmer. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist in the state of Washington. I'm the director of education and training for Game to Grow. Game to Grow is a 501c3 nonprofit that believes in the use of games of all kinds to support insight, growth, and change in community, educational, and therapeutic contexts. I am uh, a therapeutic game master, so I have run therapeutically applied role-playing games. So tabletop RPGs like D&D with ages 8 through 86, and I have ADHD. Me too! Yay! (laughs) This is why we have such great conversations.
1: Yeah. And I run D&D games, just not therapeutically. My audience knows that like every now and then I talk about D&D because I think it's an incredibly valuable tool for building all kinds of skills as a person, right? Like it's as much for the kids as it is for the adults. It's going to help us with social skills and critical thinking skills and executive functioning skills. So I try to champion it where I can. and Especially because it's getting so popular now um, or has become so popular, I guess it's even more useful for people to get exposed to it because they're seeing it on Stranger Things. And when they watch, like when they go back through Freaks and Geeks and watch the last episode of the series, and they're like, oh my God, they're playing D&D. I want to play with Critical Core, which is sort of your product, for lack of a better word, your curriculum is probably a better word, for using role-playing games as a therapeutic tool. Can we just touch on that a little bit?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So Critical Core, Is something that that Game to Grow has created, and it comes out of a couple of of combined decades of experience using tabletop role-playing games to support intentional social growth and social flourishing. A lot of what we're focusing on is kind of social confidence with youth. Uh, Critical Core was originally designed for youth, youth with autistic youth who wanted to have a space to feel safe and accepted and get to work on building real relationships with other people. Um, That being said, it's it's really designed to work with kind of people across the the age span. If you get a chance to like look at the art, the art is really designed to like not be just for kids. Um, So Critical Core is this starter set effectively, both for tabletop RPGs, but also the intentional application of tabletop RPGs designed to take a lot of what we had learned and put it in the hands of therapists and educators and parents so that they have the tools needed to start utilizing and catalyzing on the inherent benefits of tabletop RPGs. Anybody who knows anything about tabletop RPGs, if you've seen Stranger Things, you see how tabletop RPGs are this really awesome space for collaboration and cooperation and building kind of friendship and building these real and exciting relationships, building these shared experiences. And so Critical Core is a way to take that and really talk about what can we do to make the social growth part a little bit more clear, a little bit more intentional, and a little bit easier to put in the hands of parents, educators, and therapists.
1: That's awesome. And I hope there's some clinicians listening who are like, oh, I want to get my hands on that. And maybe even some parents. The thing about role-playing games that is unique is that you get to do stuff with these people at the table that you'll never do in real life. You'll never fight a dragon in real life. You'll never like prevent the unsealy court of the fae from taking over the world. Like these are not things you're going to do. I mean, probably not. Probably not. Yeah maybe people have done it and we don't know because they were successful but when we talk about it after you talk about it like you did it people don't say in this game my character did blah they say i did this and we did this and that connection that that unique exposure to these kinds of experiences and these kinds of cooperative challenges is unique in a role playing game because it's marrying game with story and that brings this interesting unity and connection to the people who are playing the game together, to the party, which is the word that typically gets used. That to me is is awesome. It makes me think about my old college group because we, I played, I ran a DD and d game for three years in college. I reconnected with those guys after like 20 years, 25 years. And it was like, we didn't miss a beat. We all got right back into it and we all connected and we played another game one of the things that was interesting to me was in leaving, I was like, wow, we're all neurodiverse. Like every single one of us is either ADHD or autistic or, or autistic, one or the other. Is there any like data to back that up?
0: There's um the, the short answer is like not enough that I would say, yes, it looks like this. Uh and the longer answer is There is research that has looked at the benefit of things like acting and play and play-based interventions for individuals um, who are neurodivergent, so especially those who have ADHD or uh, autism. Um, And what what we find, right, is that that your kind of quote-unquote traditional social skills groups, traditional social skills groups are often really focused on eliciting specific behaviors. They're really focused on um, providing kind of scripts. Like if X happens, you do Y and scripts and social scripts can be an amazing tool. So I'm not knocking them, but they shouldn't be the only thing that is provided. Uh, And so what we see in traditional social skills groups is that you have, when you, when we look at the outcomes, you find that individuals who are in those social skills groups, will rate that their knowledge of social skills, however you define it, has increased. But then when you look at parent and teacher ratings, you find that they're not necessarily reporting a greater display of these, quote unquote, social skills behaviors. So what you have is this space in which you may have people who know more about what they're supposed to do, but they aren't doing it more. And Mm -hmm. some of that can come from, um, if I've had really bad experiences interacting with people, if I'm used to not understanding what's going on around me, or I'm used to being bullied, or I'm used to being kind of pushed away when I try and make connections with people. Now that I have more information about it, that doesn't necessarily mean I want to go back and do the thing that really hurt the first time. I don't necessarily want to go back and and re-engage and in tabletop role-playing games you have so many more communication tools that can be normalized. There's so much less risk, like you can really mess up in the game and still have more opportunities to preserve a friendship than you might have if this was kind of happening in real life. Um, Tabletop RPGs also create a space for you to get to try on different identities. And that could be things like, I want to try on being more impulsive or less impulsive, or I want to um, explore something about my gender. I want to explore something about my, about my identity. I want, I, I want to work on being more confident and you can really step into this role without having to, to change. So I, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I know that when I, when I went away to college, I felt like I grew up and then I came home. And it felt like I was like, was like a kid again. And granted there was like, you know, a year, a year of experience. There was very much of me that was, was not yet the adult that I thought that I was, but there's this interesting space where when we are working on changing and growing the people around us, even if they want us to change and grow, we're still going to go, huh, you're acting different. What's up with that? And if you're not quite sure if that part of you that you're working on growing and changing is going to stick, is something that you want to keep, that can feel really uncomfortable and vulnerable to practice around the people that you know. But it's normalized to do that in theater. It's normalized to do that in tabletop role-playing games.
1: Role-playing games also can help us get to the core of who we are, right? Mm -hmm. And figure out potentially who we are because every D&D group has that player who like kind of always plays the same guy or girl. Yes. It's like, oh, because that's just who you are. Like that's just that's your deal. And that's totally fine. Not a problem. Go be that person. Enjoy being that person in this role-playing game. The scenarios that we encounter also kind of shine a light on our inner experience and our values and stuff. A story from my kid's game. I threw a hag at my, I run a d and game for my kids, old oh listeners, in case you don't know. But I threw a hag at them. There are two, girl, two girls in the game who are both playing tieflings, who are sort of like, in theory, demons, but not really demons. It's complicated. They're playing these two tiefling characters who are both magic users and are like, the good guys. So I was like, cool, the hag is going to be like, hey, come work with me and I'll teach you dark magics and you'll be super powerful and like, let me corrupt you kind of a thing. And one of the girls won me over forever because she was like, Why? Like, you're evil. Why? Wh- huh? Like, couldn't understand why she should even be tempted by that, which is completely how I react to all of those kinds of scenarios when a DM does it to me. I'm just like, I don't understand why I would do that. You're a bad guy. Like, this, this math isn't hard.
0: <laughs> that's awesome.
1: Because that's who I am inside. Is I'm like, oh, I don't get it. Um, and it's who she is inside as, as, her pers- as a person. It's fun to see those things come out. And we've got another kid who's just super chaotic, so you never know what he's going to do because in real life, he's a pretty chaotic kid. So sometimes he's going to let the bad guys go and sometimes he's going to chase them down and sometimes he's going to like talk to them. That stuff is fun because it lets you get to know your kids too. It helps you just role playing with my boys. I've gotten to know who they are and how they work and watch them grow over the course of two years as they develop this alter ego who is shining lights on who they are as a person.
0: Absolutely. And because you're in that D&D game, right? Like you have more flexibility to see more of kind of who your kids are and how they learn and grow. Um, than you might, if this is in the real world and you were, for example, worried about safety, right? Like I really want my, you know, if I'm working with kids, I really want them to get to grow and explore and be themselves. And if we're like going on a hike on a mountain, then there's going to be some certain stuff that I'm going to have to be like, you can't do that because if you do that and you mess it up, you could die. Whereas in DD, you get the opportunity to try out stuff that might be really, really a bad idea. And you still you get to have that experiential learning without any concerns around safety. So like as a GM, I can put effectively like less constraints on your behavior. That doesn't mean that there are no consequences. There's consequences to anything that happens in the world but it means that you have more of this flexibility to try something out. And if it's a terrible idea, you get to learn from it as opposed to never getting to try something out at all because the consequences could be too dangerous.
1: I'm going to pivot back to critical core. Absolutely. Because I want to talk about the good game master model that you have. Yes. I think it's not just for good game masters. I think it's good. It's good parents. It's good teachers. It's good mentors. It's, kind of good people, like it's bigger than just game masters. So I want to share that model. Absolutely. It certainly spoke to me. What it says, this is on page uh, 11 of the game master guide. It says good game masters have spark and spark stands for spontaneity, playfulness, attunement, restraint, and knowledge. Can we play with that a little bit? Can you kind of go into where that comes from and what the logic is there?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we talk about this a lot in our training program. So we have a training program for mental health professionals, educators, and parents. The idea behind SPARK, the acronym was coined by one of our founders, Adam Davis. Most of the acronyms that you will find, um, Adam Davis created the, the acronyms for those. So when we're thinking about how to be a good game master or a good facilitator, and, and like you mentioned, a good parent, there's a couple of pieces that we really want to keep in mind because you're, you're kind of balancing a couple of things. And so when we talk about spontaneity, playfulness, attunement, restraint, and knowledge, these are kind of five pieces that you want to kind of keep in mind as you're moving forward. And what I like to tell people is people are probably going to come already with strengths in some of those areas. And that's awesome. You're going to have strengths in some of those areas, and some of those areas are going to be areas of growth for you. And we can often capitalize on some of our strengths to kind of support those areas of growth as we're still building competency in those areas. But to talk a little bit about um, spark, so spontaneity is this first piece. And when we're talking about spontaneity, we're talking about the kind of spontaneity that comes from drama therapy. So the definition there, I'm going to totally butcher uh, the way that Marino originally talked about it, but it's basically this idea that you're able to respond in the moment without a lot of conscious thought in a way that is appropriate to the moment itself. So spontaneity, we can almost think about it as like socially acceptable impulsivity or like the, the kind of impulsivity that like gets you where you're going as opposed to the kind of impulsivity that, that leads to you accidentally falling off off a cliff. So spontaneity is like, I feel comfortable and confident and safe enough in the space that I'm in that I'm able to respond without a lot of thought. Um, We can think about this in terms of like improv, right? If I'm able to, yes. And what someone else is saying, I'm able to kind of move forward. Then that's going to be kind of a spontaneous response. If I am stuck and I am thinking about what's going on, then that's going to be less spontaneous. Now we often talk about, again, from the drama therapy literature, we talk about anxiety as this idea of, of blocked spontaneity. And that makes sense, right? If I am wanting to uh, yes and someone else's idea, but I, I get anxious about giving the right answer or I get anxious about um, if I'm being the right kind of silly or what's supposed to happen next, then that's gonna really get me stuck. Um, I re- really struggle with improv games. I have my entire life because I get a lot of anxiety around this like f- this very vague start. It's part of the reason why I like DD so much because there' are so many more constraints <laughs> that I feel like I'm a little bit safer in moving forward. But spontaneity is that ability to kind of respond in the moment. And this is, this is things in terms of like if your kid does something and you're able to effectively respond in the moment without kind of going through a mental checklist of should I do this or should I do this and what's, what's kind of the next step. Um, parents often have to rely a lot on spontaneity because you often have to respond to your kid without a lot of lead time in between the prompt and the needed response.
1: One of the things that gets in the way for parents when it comes to spontaneity and turns that spontaneous response, you know, a little to the dark side is the implied pressure of other people observing you parent. Mm -hmm. We often snap at our kids, not because we really care about what they did, but because we're afraid that someone else cares about what my kid just did. And I want to make it look like I'm on top of my kid when in fact, it's not really a big deal to me. That's a thing that I've had to struggle with as a parent, certainly. And in learning about when I when I care and when I don't, like sometimes, even when my kids were little, like we would hop fences getting out of playgrounds. If the fence was nice and low and we wanted to go to the field on the other side, we wouldn't walk around to the door. We would ADHD it and climb the fence and hop over the fence and then go to the field because that's much that, more fun. That's right. That's more fun. Exactly. And it's teaching them how to climb. And it's to some degree, I'm like, and it's teaching them to kind of ignore boundaries because- Boundaries matter, but also sometimes they don't, right? If there's an open door
0: right. and I'm just going over the fence instead of the open door.
1: Yeah, it's not a big deal. It's not like it's a locked door that we're not supposed to go through and we're hopping the fence. That's a different boundary.
0: That's a different boundary. Yeah.
1: yeah. But I had to consciously work against the idea that like I might be judged for letting my kids hop this fence, right? The first time it happened, I was in full ADHD mode and I was like, all right, let's go. And I hopped the fence. And then I reached over the fence and picked both my kids up because they were little put them on the other side and watched everyone stare at me. And I was like, oh, I didn't didn't even think about that. Like I just went. And then I was like, oh, but this is interesting. And I had to have that conversation with myself about it makes more sense because the door was on the, it was like a square fence, right? We were on the other side of where the door was. We'd have to walk all the way around this big playground Mm -hmm. to get to where we wanted to go. Didn't make sense. So that spontaneity sometimes gets undermined by our assumption that society is judging us. Which may or may not even be true because sometimes our spontaneity gets squashed when we're in our own home and no one else is around because we're still feeling the pressure of the eyes of society on us.
0: Well, because we have so much internalized stuff, right, from society, from prior experiences um, oftentimes we're like self kind of policing our behavior. This can even come. Um, I'm, I'm curious how many, how many of the listeners noticed this when I started working from home with COVID, um, especially because I'll, I'll, some of my work as a therapist obviously was in, in kind of a room with just a client. Uh, but oftentimes I was doing paperwork and stuff in a bullpen with, with other therapists. And how long it took me to, once I got home, realize that like I could shift and I could fidget and I didn't have to um, sit with like both my feet on the floor in my chair. I could kind of sit however I wanted. I was engaging in so much of this kind of masking behavior instead of just leaning into what worked for me when nobody was watching me because I was at home by myself.
1: I was talking about this with a client this morning because she was talking about when she's in zoom meetings Mm -hmm. and the video is on and there's times when she's more focused on like sitting appropriately and not fidgeting and not moving around and all that stuff. And she's not really paying attention to what's happening in the meeting because there's too much brain power on sit still. And I said to her, well, assuming it's sort of culturally appropriate within your zoom meetings, could you just turn off your video for a little while and pace or wander or whatever, just bring your computer with you do the meeting that way. And she was like, I probably could. That'd be fine. Yeah. As long as it wasn't forever. So stop masking, just turn the screen off so no one can tell.
0: Well, what I love is like I'm not no one on this podcast can see me, but uh, I look if you could if you could see me in the the video window that we're using, um it looks like I am not fidgeting at all, but you can only see part of my body. And so I'm able to like move my legs around. I'm able to kind of shift and adjust. I'm able to fidget with things with my hands in a way that is out of that camera view. And so it's actually been really, really helpful for um for that and i I never thought that I would enjoy working from home. And it's, it's been really great in part of just how much I'm able to move and shift in ways that people don't notice or isn't distracting to other people, but helps me focus.
1: This is my Michelangelo fidget. And this is my little tiny carabiner fidget. And I'm at a standing desk. Nice. So I can move my legs and shift my weight and all that stuff as necessary. Yeah. I'm with you. Nice. Um, Let's move on to playfulness.
0: So playfulness is one. So when I started running groups, the first time, the first therapeutic groups I was running were with adolescent girls who'd experienced trauma. And then after that, I was running groups with military veterans. When I was running, especially groups with military veterans, this idea of, obviously, we know that play is important and play is important throughout the lifespan. But when I was talking to my supervisors and my supervisor's supervisors in the VA to get some of these groups started, um, play and playfulness was was not necessarily where I started with some of that explanation. Some of what I was talking about was um, working on creating a safe space for people, was working on Um, this idea of kind of practicing skills that we take outside. But when we, anytime we're talking about creating a space for people to learn and grow, we have to be focused on their safety and their willingness to engage. And part of the way that we can do that is through modeling. And if I'm not willing to be playful, if I'm not willing to be engaged in this game, if I'm not able to, to kind of consider the world in a way that it is not right now, why would I expect my players to do that? We often think of the space of the, the GM has to be kind of in charge or the adult in the room or the therapist in the room or the educator in the room has to be in charge. Um, I've, I've heard the, like, don't smile until after Christmas as advice for new teachers.
1: I was always bad at that.
0: I, yeah, there's no way that I would manage that. Um, in part, because I think that learning is really fun and I want people to be fun and engaged and obviously we need boundaries to keep everybody safe, but playfulness is so, so important for for gms and for therapeutic gms in part because it creates the it helps set the expectation and the tone for what the group is going to be if you are not willing to be vulnerable through play then your players should not feel safe or comfortable being vulnerable through play either
1: and the same is true for parents and their kids right like if your kid is all of a sudden zipping around the house or jumping in circles or climbing off the back of the couch or whatever they need to play a little bit. Last night, I avoided that with one of my kids, 13 years old, right? Who's been having these like zoomies towards around seven, seven thirty, Cause I, we were sitting on the couch watching Mythbusters and I just kind of like grabbed them and started shaking them around and sort of wrestling, sort of not. Um, I was just being a jerk kind of, but like wow, was he lit up and engaged all of a sudden. He was just like playing with dad. Yay. I want to be here. This is what I want. And his whole affect changed. He went from kind of looking like he was a little bit off, kind of watching Mythbusters, kind of reading the player's handbook, because that's my household, kind of not really knowing what to do with himself, sort of, even though he insisted we watch Mythbusters, it was his idea. But he needed to play a little bit because he'd been at school like all last week and the weekend was not as playful as it could have been. And he gets anxious about Monday We're recording on a Monday. And so he needed to be goofy for a few minutes and me doing that with him, even while Mythbusters played, he didn't get all Zoomy anxious right before bed. Like he's been doing for the last week or so. I think because we engaged in some playfulness prior to that.
0: Absolutely. Play is really good for our brains. We know that there's lots of research that supports that throughout the lifespan, Um, and we also know that play can be really good for our learning and our ability to engage and play can be a great way to try out scenarios. Um, when we're trying to think about like what's going to work and what's not going to work, if we're engaging this, um, engaging with those from this more playful mindset, it lowers the stakes of what's happening. If this is kind of a playful back and forth, let's figure out what the plan is, or we're kind of talking about boundaries in this, a little bit more of this playful way. It allows more space for exploration without these kind of heavy consequences. Where if you get it wrong, it's it's kind of over. Um, so that that playfulness can be really important, and that obviously doesn't mean that you should be playful or kind of like make fun of all of those all of the things that may come up in parenting. But it can be especially beneficial when we are engaging with stuff that can be kind of hard or challenging, or we're not we're not kind of sure where it, where it lines up.
1: So let's move on to the the A in Spark and play with attunement.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So tunement is this ability to really be kind of dialed into your players. So this this has to do a lot with perspective taking. So my ability to notice where I am at, both in terms of my like regulation, how tired I am, how engaged I am, um, what I kind of sound like, am I sounding playful, am I sounding sarcastic, what's happening there, and how my players are doing. Do my players look like they're low energy? How are they responding to the information I'm giving them in game. I have described what I think is this super cool and creepy underground cavern. Are they responding with shock and awe and wonder and going around to explore or are they disengaged? Engaging with our players and and that kind of attunement piece is so vital for being able to meet our players where they're at. So being able to understand, okay, you're starting at kind of low energy today. So how do we kind of ramp that up? Or it seems like today feels like it's a little bit more emotionally sensitive of a day. So, we want to be kind of mindful that your capacity for emotional regulation might be a little bit lower than it is normally. So, I might want to be mindful about how I engage with that. Um, Obviously, when we're talking about tables with RPGs, we talk about safety tools, which are systems that you can use in games to make sure that everyone feels comfortable and okay and is having a good time. And that if topics come up that might make people feel triggered or unsafe, that we're able to manage that appropriately. But part of that, is part of using safety tools effectively is also you as the GM or the facilitator's ability to notice when your players are starting to be really excited about something or they start to look kind of uncomfortable. Attunement also has to do with the ability to kind of build rapport with with participants. So do participants feel safe? Do you feel like you're on the same page?
1: As parents, this is also critical for us, right? We have to be attuned to our kids. A thing that's come up for me a fair amount recently in working with clients and doing some summits and the parent groups and all that is I often work with parents who have a strong need for control. And when I say what I'm about to say next, it helps them attune to their kids better and and save some struggles. Because often when you have a parent with a strong need for control, you also have a kid with strong need for control and that causes conflict. But when parents can realize, oh my kid needs control. That's why we're battling so much. I should at least give them the illusion of control, if not actual control over some stuff, not everything. Obviously, that's not realistic. But once the the parent with that strong need for control can let go of some of the smaller control bits and give them to the kid, paradoxically, they wind up getting more influence and control in the parent-child relationship because they're not fighting as much. They're cooperating more. And the kid has more respect for them and wants to please them even more than they already did and sees that they can. And those things are all really good. And that that's an example of attunement is recognizing what does my kid need? What motivates my kid? And how can I use that to help navigate the daily challenges of family?
0: Yeah. You not only talked about attunement, you actually like dialed us into the next piece, which is that restraint
1: piece. Which is interesting to me because that's the one that I can see people being like, what does this have to do with parenting and game mastering and all that stuff? Because it's spontaneity and playfulness and connection and knowing stuff. And then there's this one that's restraint that feels almost like the inverse of everything else, which is probably why it matters so much. Yeah, yeah, please walk us through that.
0: Restraint, if you're familiar with like mindfulness techniques, there's this idea of kind of non-attachment, right? I'm going to observe my thoughts, but I'm not going to necessarily get stuck in those thoughts. Um, so this is like, if you've done like leaves on a stream or other kind of exercises where you're observing, Um, this is also really important. If you are a parent and you're thinking about, if I want to help support my kids, I'm not going to do all of the tasks for them. I might help them with certain tasks. Obviously this is going to be age appropriate. I'm going to help them with certain tasks where I'm going to scaffold, which means with scaffolding, That is, I'm going to support someone. I'm going to give them the skills that they need to accomplish the task. They wouldn't be able to do it on their own, but with my help, they can do it, which is different than me tying their shoes for them. But I might support them in tying their shoes. I might walk them through that. I might even like hold on to some of the laces at a certain point in time to support. And so restraint is this ability to know when I'm supposed to step back. Know when I am supposed to let my participants or my kids kind of step forward and take up more space and take on more responsibility. Restraint is also this ability to sit with your own discomfort of the participants' discomfort. So I'm a therapist, so I think that discomfort and conflict are great. Um, and the I am I'm less trying to reduce. Or eliminate discomfort and conflict, and more helping to support people and how to effectively manage discomfort and conflict. Because discomfort, uncomfortable emotions, are part of how we understand that something in our life might not be going the direction that we want it to go. Uh, It's a really important alarm system for us. And so restraint means um, this is similar. Like if if your kid falls on the playground, you absolutely want to support your kid, but you don't necessarily want to rush over and go, "Oh my gosh." oh my gosh, that looks like it hurts so much. Oh my gosh, are you okay? That You must not be okay. Oh my gosh, let me help you. Let me help you, right? Because you're telling your kiddo that like they are not okay right now, right? And so this is that moment where internally you are like <laughs> holding in all of that. Oh my gosh, is my kid okay? And you're working with them to, to help, mm-hmm. to again, use that attunement to understand do they look really distressed? Do they look kind of confused? Where are they? How can I best support them? But you're not telling them that they're not okay. And so restraint is this ability to step back. There are plenty of times as a GM where we want to come in and we maybe want to help provide a little bit more information for them to solve the puzzle. Or we want to remind people why they're in this room in the first place. And that can be really valuable. But sometimes it's helpful for your players to have the freedom and flexibility uh, to be bored for a minute until they can figure out why they were in this room. Or to feel really stuck and frustrated until they can figure out some of the pieces that they need to be able to solve whatever puzzle has come up. It can be this challenging balance between what what help they need versus providing kind of too much help. Does that make
1: sense? It does. Yeah. Yeah. And and I also like the I also like that you played with us as parents having to be able to be uncomfortable with our kid being uncomfortable. Cause that's incredibly hard especially when the anxiety at home is really high. When we're anxious and the kid's anxious, and then the kid gets more anxious and then we get more anxious. And now we're off to the races with arguing or yelling or hiding or overcomforting or whatever it is that's going to be your response to that. It's important that we learn how to not do that. That's certainly a road that I've been traveling down personally is like, when my kid spikes really high, how do I just kind of let him and, and be the safe place for him to go without being the comforting place for him to go? That's a tricky balance for me sometimes.
0: With parenting, it can be it can be really challenging. And oftentimes when you're a parent, right, your number one priority is going to be your kid's well-being. That is often going to come ahead of your well-being, um, which is really consistent with a lot of values that parents have around parenting. Um, it doesn't matter if you're tired, your kids still need to eat, right? Like those kinds of things. And that's that's important. But what I think can be challenging for parents, especially when parents don't have infinite resources, which I have yet to meet a parent with infinite resources is that you can get in the space where you're like, Oh, my kid is stressed or my kid is anxious or my kid is struggling. And so I need to help them. But one of the things that can be most valuable for, for kids is for their parent to also have some of those skills. If your kid is struggling with regulation, if your kid is struggling with anxiety, you absolutely want to get them help and support. But part of getting them help and support may be your own help and support around regulation and anxiety, kids are used to engaging in co-regulation with the people around them, which means I can help calm them down a little bit. Or if I'm kind of constantly anxious or overwhelmed, or if their anxiety makes me anxious, then we're going to just regulate like the, the dysregulation is going to spiral. So thinking about working on regulation for yourself and creating a space and not just shoving it down, but actually creating a space where you feel Comfortable in managing your discomfort is so important.
1: And recognizing that if your kid is neurodiverse and challenged by anxiety or ADHD, you plant potatoes, you get potatoes. So odds are either you or your spouse is also dealing with something around neurodiversity, anxiety, ADHD, autism, whatever the case may be. And we've got to figure that out as parents so that we can present better for our kids. And now that I've dropped that knowledge, Let's go on to knowledge.
0: So knowledge is, is actually intentionally, both because it helps spell out Spark, but also um, it, it is kind of the, the fifth most important, right? Knowledge is important, but if you have just knowledge and nothing else, you're going to really struggle. So knowledge includes knowledge of the game, right? So knowledge of d d or Pathfinder or Critical Core or whatever you're playing. It also involves knowledge about your... Participants. Who are your players? What are the kinds of supports that they need? So you'll notice that all five of these these pieces of spark are really interrelated because knowledge is going to really shift into attunement because attunement is part of how I gather knowledge, right? The more knowledge I have, the more I might be able to be spontaneous because I feel a little bit more. I have less anxiety around having access to knowledge. So knowledge involves our information that we have about the game, uh, the system that we're running. It also is our ability to understand what our players might need, what our goals for the game are, what are the safety tools that I'm using. So it's a lot of the kind of logistical pieces. Now, to be a great facilitator, to be a great game master, you don't need to have read every single word of the player's handbook in the Dungeon Master's Guide. I haven't, and I've been doing this professionally for years, and I'm good at it. Um, but it's about having the kind of baseline knowledge that you need to run the kinds of games that are important to you and are important to your players. In our trainings, we talk a lot about how to support players who are your like rules lawyers or your rules scholars. So I absolutely have played games with people who have more technical knowledge about D and than I do. And that's awesome. I love playing those games. And so knowledge is about making sure that I have the base knowledge that I don't have to rely on those players to, to get the game to happen. But I also have enough knowledge of how to integrate those players' experiences and expertise into the game in a way that feels really exciting
1: for everyone. And for parents, it's knowledge of like how the world works and what's going on and what the plan for the day is. And whether or not you have football tonight or you have to go to school for a curriculum night or turns out dad's going to come home late and mom's got a meeting So there's going to be a babysitter or whatever the case may be. As parents, we have a ton of knowledge and it almost circles back to restraint because as your kid gets older, you don't have to know as much and you can let, you can scaffold them so that they get the knowledge and they get to come to learn things too. Um, So I, I just love the spark model. It's, it's awesome. Um, I hope that it's been super illuminating for some of the parents listening. There's so much more I want to talk to you about, but I'm looking at the clock. And, um, I gotta, I gotta go just being mindful of time. Do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience?
0: Anybody who's sitting here and listening to this and is like, this sounds kind of cool and it sounds valuable, but it sounds like too much is to, to just jump in and play. Critical core was, so it was was created as this kind of combination with creative advertising agency in Hong Kong, as well as Game to grow. And it's, it's this incredible space, but the the goal was to create a box that people could start with without having any prior knowledge of tabletop RPGs. If you've been playing Pathfinder for 20 years, this box is still a great, a great starting point. Critical core creates an opportunity for you to get to jump in without having a ton of knowledge. It's really streamlined. It is designed to get you up and running as quickly as possible. And so my advice is to just start playing whatever that looks like for you. And if you're saying this feels like too much, then my secondary advice is to check out Critical Core.
1: Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com.